June 8th, 1942. Vilna, Lithuania. It's the middle of the night. A bright moon fights to be seen through the clouds in the dense forest. A rail-thin young woman makes her way to the edge of the woods, a secret on her lips and a mission on her mind. She walks slowly, cautiously, but with purpose. A branch crackles beneath her feet. She stops, holds her breath. In these dark woods, the slightest sound can travel for miles. Then she carries on. As she straightens, a look of strong determination on her face grows with each step. It's clear that this woman is anything but ordinary. Suddenly, as the moon peeks from behind the clouds, a train track appears into view. And now the young woman's target becomes clear. A Nazi train barreling down the tracks. The young woman approaches a curve in the tracks. As the approaching train gets louder, she reaches under her large coat and pulls out a handmade mine. Her breathing heavy, her hands shaking, she hurriedly affixes the mine to the train tracks, praying that it might actually work. As she steps back, she nods to two colleagues waiting just a few steps behind. Together, they, they run into the woods just as... The Nazi supply train, packed with soldiers and weapons, explodes into a thousand pieces. Fire in her eyes, conviction in her heart, the young woman turns to her compatriots, an unspoken question on all of their lips. What next? I'm David Weil, creator and executive producer of the series Hunters on Prime Video. I was inspired to create the series because of my grandmother, Sarah Weil, a Holocaust survivor. When I was young, my softest started telling me the stories of her experiences during the war. To me, her heroism felt like the stuff of comic books and superheroes. During one of the darkest, most horrific periods in human history, there were ordinary people who made the choice to resist, standing up and fighting for the common humanity of their fellow people, doing what many of us would consider impossible. Hunters is inspired by the heroism of survivors like my grandmother and of heroes and resistors like these. The stories you're about to hear are true and the words and many of the voices you'll hear belong to the heroes, survivors, their families, and friends. This is Chutzpah. Hunters presents True Stories of Resistance. And this is The Rebel. What is the difference between justice and revenge? At the heart of that question, and the heart of this story, is a young woman who didn't stand down in the face of atrocity and persecution. Her name is Vitka Kempner. Vitka Kempner was born on March 14, 1920 in Western Poland, in the country town of Kalisz. One third of the town's population was Jewish, and Vitka grew up surrounded by the culture and beliefs of her people. From an early age, she had a rebellious, fearless spirit, unwilling to take no for an answer. Curiosity and intellectualism were encouraged in her family. 
And after graduating high school, she moves to Warsaw to study in a Jewish seminary. While there, she finds herself gravitating toward those who not only asked questions, but who acted on their beliefs. She joins a student movement affiliated with Hashemer Hatzair, a socialist youth movement with branches across Eastern Europe. Their objective was the establishment of a Jewish state. As Nazi ideals spread quickly across Eastern Europe, their mission begins to take on new urgency. Little does Witka know how quickly the time is running out for her people in Warsaw. In September 1939, the Germans invade Poland. Witka returns home to Kalisz to discover that her family and the Jewish community are being forced into ghettos. She makes the most difficult but most pivotal decision of her life and her first act of resistance. Here's how Witka described the experience. When I saw that the Germans were collecting the Jews in some monastery, empty, and I heard the screams, the way they related, the beatings, they beat the Jews. I told my parents, I'm not staying, I'm running away with my friends. My parents didn't really accept it, but they had no choice, and in the night we jumped out of the window and fled. Within two or three days we arrived at the Russian-Polish border. Vitka makes the heart-wrenching choice to leave her parents in the ghetto. And she escapes to Vilna, Lithuania, with her younger brother and a group of other young people, including her best friend, Roska Korczak, an activist who had already seen her family deported by the Germans. Together, they vow that they will do everything to fight for the Jewish people. Now, a bit of context. At this point, the Germans had not invaded Lithuania, and Vilna was a free city, serving as a vibrant hub of youth movements who are actively searching for routes of immigration to Palestine. While they came from different cities and different groups, they all shared the same beliefs and same desire for action. In this like-minded community, Vitka finds herself a natural leader. She has a righteous anger that drives her sense of purpose, and people in the movement gravitate towards her. It's here, in 1939, where Vitka meets her future husband, Abba Kovner. He is 21, she is 19. Immediately, they each sense a kindred spirit in the other, driven by their deeply shared values. Here's author and Holocaust historian, Dina Porat. They were very much attached to the land of Israel, to its development, to the leaders of their movement there. But they also felt, because of being raised on, uh, on thinking politically, ideologically, they felt both belonging to the world at large and very much belonging to the Jewish people. They felt a kind of responsibility for the Jewish people, for its future. And since they, of course, couldn't really have a direct impact on its future, they at least thought about the honor, the name, the character of the Jewish people to which they belonged. When they meet, Abba and Vitka see each other as comrades, nothing more. But they both recognize in each other a fire, a willingness to do whatever it took 
to achieve their goals of Jewish liberation, which becomes all the more pressing in June of 1941, when German tanks roll into Vilna. Within a few short months, the Vilna ghetto has been established, and 40,000 Jewish residents of the city are forced into an area built to hold one-tenth of this population. The ghetto was set up in September 1941. The invasion took place towards the end of June, and then a few weeks of the Jews being attacked all over by their neighbors and by Germans, but mainly by the neighbors. A ghetto seemed a sort of, uh, not a reasonable solution, but at least some area where they will be among Jews only. And there will be a fence around so that at least the Lithuanians cannot come in and rape and harass and, and loot. But short, in a short while, it became clear that this is a death trap from which the Germans were taking part after part. They were promised by the Germans that those taken out of the ghetto would return. They would return. They are simply now in another ghetto where they are working, and with due course, they would unite again, etc. All these uh, systems of German lies. The truth becomes menacingly clear when an 11-year-old girl returns from a place called Ponar. Just six miles south of Vilna, Ponar was known as a popular resort town for local residents, where they could spend the summer surrounded by nature and gather berries and mushrooms. But now... This is no longer the case. Tearfully, the young girl tells the group of what Ponar has now become, a mass grave. Germans were taking Jews in the thousands to these giant pits and executing them by firing squad. This girl herself was shot and believed to be dead, but she escaped. And she explains how they were herded, how they were un told to undress how they were shot into the pit, how they thought she's dead in the pit, but she managed to crawl out, all red with blood, and went uh, knocking at the doors of uh, Lithuanian neighbors of, of the area. And finally, she gets back. Now, when these new arrivals, these new escapees came to the ghetto, people didn't want to believe. But Abba said that an 11 years old girl cannot invent it. She cannot invent it. It must have happened. And this is reality. The cold, awful truth sets in. The Jewish community is being exterminated. But what could they do about it? Vitka and her comrades realized that to keep the resistance active, they would have to find other allies. Anna Borkowska was a mother superior in a convent in Vilna, and she took the tenets of her faith seriously. With nerves of steel, Anna refused to be threatened by the Germans and saw fellow sentiments reflected by the emerging youth partisan groups. Against the recommendations of so many around her, Anna opens her convent doors to the young resistors, providing them a safe haven. Understanding that women were considered less of a threat to the Germans than men at this time, Vitka makes arrangements for the convent to take in the highest-ranking male members of their movement. 
Anna takes in as many as 30 members of various Jewish youth groups, feeding them, clothing them, keeping them safe from the ghetto while they work in the garden. High-ranking male leaders are hidden in disguise as nuns while they plan their next move. Vitka visits as often as she can, bringing any supplies she can get her hands on. Against Anna's objections, they start sneaking back and forth to the ghetto and smuggling weapons into the convent. While she fears for her own safety, Anna, as a Catholic, supports their mission. In her view, it is the highest duty to serve those less fortunate than yourself, regardless of personal cost. And she continues aiding them as the resistance and threat grows. By mid-December, over 33,000 Jews from Vilna have been killed. Nearly two-thirds of the city's Jewish population. The turning point comes on the night of December 31st, 1941. In a small, cramped room in the ghetto, 150 resistance members, including Vitka and Abba, hold a meeting. The mood is anxious and emotions run high. Members discuss various plans. How do we move forward? Do we fight or do we leave? Do you believe the Germans when they say they're relocating or do we accept the atrocities of what is going on? Three weeks later, the FPO, the United Partisans Organization, is born. Here's Vitka again. The purpose of the FPO was complex. We saw ourselves as the representatives of the people, and we asked ourselves, what needs to be done in this complicated situation? And since we considered ourselves to be the representatives of the people, we were, after all, a pioneer movement, we asked ourselves, what now? And the answer was that we wanted to organize missions against the Germans in order to preserve the dignity of the people. So we decided that we would fight as the representatives of the people. This was no informal youth movement. This was an army. Under the command of Yitzhak Wittenberg, the FPO has two battalions and an arsenal of weapons. They were preparing for battle. When the Germans came to the Vilna ghetto, they would be ready. Meanwhile, Vitka's activities are already underway. Vitka works as a secret agent, traveling across Vilna undercover, bringing young FPO leaders from different hiding places back into the ghetto. And together, they start planning what will become the first major act of resistance against the German army. Jews were not allowed to leave the ghetto. There was only one gate through which we could exit, and not everyone was allowed to leave. Only Jews leaving for work were allowed to leave, and even then, a German would lead them. In addition, Jews were not allowed to walk on the sidewalk, so I would leave with a group of Jews who left for work. I had a yellow star on my back and in the front, and after I left, I had to walk on the sidewalk. So in order to walk like a non-Jew, I had to take off the yellow star 
so they wouldn't see me. Because if they saw me and knew I was a Jew, the Germans only knew one punishment, death. On the outskirts of Vilna, a train track carries German supply trains daily, loaded with cargo, weapons, and soldiers. To strike at the heart of the Nazi war machine, what if the partisans were to destroy these trains? The FPO immediately knows the best person for the job, Vitka. Time and again, she has proven herself as a commander in the movement. For Vitka, this is not just an assignment. It's a mission. Of course, first Vitka and her team had to learn how to make a bomb. Let's remember, they were not soldiers. The only resource they had was a dog-eared Finnish book on how to make a homemade mine. Vitka turns to friends who work with the Germans to bring them explosives, which she places inside of a metal pipe. Working side by side with her comrades in the basement of the convent, the partisans construct this homemade bomb with its center holding explosives and a fuse. It turns out that that was the easy part. The challenge was to get the bomb out of the ghetto. It was big, one meter, and it wasn't simple to pass the gate. But there were Jewish policemen in our organization who were also our friends. Harmatz, a policeman who was also a member of the FPO, hid the one-meter-sized bomb under his coat and walked with us part of the way. With him, we were safe. We were safe, but usually policemen, to our sorrow, often cooperated with the Germans and the Lithuanians. Disguised as a blonde peasant, Vitka walks with a Jewish policeman, carrying forged papers, and if she were to get caught, a cyanide pill in her pocket. The policeman escorts her and her partners to the edge of the forest, with the bomb hiding under his coat. From here, it's all up to Vitka. Here's Dr. Lori Weintraub, director of the Wagner College Holocaust Center. So, of course, there's a number of dangers that as she's moving around, she has explosives on her. She could be caught at any moment. At one point, she wanders onto like a firing range. And then she just basically says to the Germans, like, like, accuse her, what are you doing out at night? What are you doing here? And she's just like, oh, I got lost, you know. And this is, again, one of the ways that um, there were times when women who were either liaisons, couriers, or delegates of the resistance organizations, they had a certain advantage because they could play on gender expectations, as have women in other guerrilla movements throughout history. Vitka manages to evade the Germans but she still has to figure out how to stop a speeding train. Here's Dina Porat again. So she went out in order to see, to detect um, how the train goes, at what speed, and where does it slow down. And she found that there was a curve along which the train was slowing down, and this is a perfect place for a mine. She spent alone three days and three nights in the forest. Finally, she finds her perfect moment. It's here where we return to that young woman walking through the dark woods in the dead of night. 
A bright moon fights to be seen through the clouds against a backdrop of dense forest. A branch crackles beneath Vitka's feet. She stops, holds her breath. In these dark woods, the slightest sound can travel for miles. Then, Vitka carries on. A look of determination on her face grows with each step. As the moon peeks from behind the clouds, a train appears into view. Vitka approaches a curve in the train tracks. As the approaching train gets louder, she reaches under her large coat and pulls out the handmade mine. Her breathing heavy, her hands shaking, she hurriedly affixes the mine to the train tracks. As she steps back, she nods to two colleagues waiting a few steps behind. Together, they run into the woods, just as the Nazi supply train packed with soldiers and weapons explodes into a thousand pieces. Vitka and her friends return to the ghetto, victorious. They drink to their success. Her triumph signals the beginning of a new chapter of active resistance for the FPO. Vitka and other female partisans regularly sneak out of the ghetto to execute other sabotage missions, often traveling to the very factories where German weapons are being made. They destroy motors and cannons, remove screws from planes, cut telephone lines. They smuggle weapons into the ghetto in false-bottomed coffins. But their victories are not without sacrifice. Following the train bombing, believing that Polish residents were behind the attacks, the Nazis indiscriminately killed dozens of Poles who live near the railway. In this moment, Witka realizes the collective responsibility behind their actions and the awful reality that in trying to protect innocent people, innocent people may also be killed. To keep each other safe, they use the password Litsa is calling, which means to remain where you are. The phrase itself was a solemn reminder of their partisan friend, Litsa, who had gone to warn Jews in the ghetto of their impending extermination. And even when she was ultimately captured and tortured, she never gave up her code. In their minds, every action is necessary. Whether or not it would reverse the tide of history, it is what they must do as Jews and as partisans. But in July 1943, the tide turns again. Vitka, now 23, finds her own organization in crisis. Receiving intelligence of the FPO's existence, the Nazis storm the Vilna ghetto, demanding the location of Commander Yitzhak Wittenberg, leader of the FPO. If the Jews didn't surrender their leader, the Nazis would destroy the ghetto and all of its inhabitants. In the process, they tried to turn the already desperate Jewish community against each other. Here's Vitka's colleague and FPO member, Abba Kovner, from his own testimony about this event. The entire ghetto besieged us behind our headquarters. And it was all we could do to get to Wittenberg, to this attic where he was. The revolver was there on the table. He wanted to commit suicide. No, he did not do that. And then he asked, do you wish me to turn myself over? I told him, look, there are Jews in the streets. We shall have to fight them to get to the enemy. 
Give an order and we shall fight. Are you prepared to give that order? No. Wittenberg surrendered himself to the Germans and was poisoned during his interrogation. In doing so, he became a martyr for the movement. And the FPO's new leader? Abba. Realizing Vilna's Jews would not rise up before the final destruction of the ghetto, Abba splits the FPO into two teams, those who will continue their sabotage and those who will stay in the ghetto and fight. The majority of the partisans, about 300, made a dangerous journey into the forest, smuggling people through the sewer system to the Roninkai forest, where other rebel groups had built a makeshift camp. For nearly eight hours, they crawl through sewage in a dark tunnel on hands and knees to finally emerge at the edge of the city at Pushkin Palace after being caged in the ghetto for close to two years. Those who stay, including Vitka, take up positions in abandoned buildings and briefly fight the Germans before escaping the destruction. We understood that there would be no possibility to fight only in the ghetto. So we decided to take groups out into the forest, but under one condition, with weapons and without women. For a long time, we didn't want to accept that condition. We said that we could come with weapons. For us, the women should have precisely the same mission as the men. When they decide even they must leave, Vitka leads the last group of 60 fighters out to the dense forest on the outskirts of the city. They come with nothing but the clothes on their backs. But this is far from a comfortable refuge. As they arrive, the ground is swampy from the incessant rain. The tall trees block out the daylight to the point where one can't tell left from right. The living conditions are miserable and they survive for months in extreme poverty and filth. By the beginning of October, there were more than 250 Jews in the forest, coming from a myriad of different backgrounds and allegiances. But what they all had in common was resistance. As partisan Senka Nisanilwitz says, quote, in the forest, we created a new family and were united by our common fate our suffering and wanderings, and our shared experiences, end quote. Using contacts within Moscow, they scrounge and barter for food and weapons. The forest also signals an escalation in their opposition activities. Here, Vitka describes the scope of their sabotage operations. Our purpose was to fight against the Germans and to hit them in Vilna in order to show that the partisans can reach them anywhere, even in the city. The goal was to blow up the electricity transformers in the middle of the city and to interrupt the flow of water to blow up the water supply. And we went out, two boys and two girls. 
I put down three of these bombs, and the boys succeeded in blowing up the water pipes. After a few hours, we heard explosions, and the city fell into darkness. There was a great joy, and it had an impact on the Germans, who understood that the partisans had reached all the way into Vilna. They didn't know a few Jewish boys and girls did that. Women were active participants in the partisan movement. There were as many as 3,000 Jewish women in various groups. But even among them, Fitka stood out. For a woman, under the existing conditions, it was much more difficult to be a partisan. The Soviets didn't even consider girls to be able to fight, although they had some, but few. And they developed the theory that whoever helps the partisans is a fighter. Someone who peels potatoes for fighting partisans is a fighter. Whoever washes clothes is a fighter. This was their ideology. That's what they would say. But amongst us who were girls, we had the feeling that we could do the same job that the boys did. But it was very difficult to convince them. But there were also possibilities to fight. Vitka and the FPO continue their missions. But despite their accomplishments, their actions do not come without a heavy cost. Here again is Dina Porat. And so part Jewish partisans in the forest were fighting harder and harsher as much as they could. Looking from today back, we say, of course, resisting, going out to the forest, this is what one should do. But they felt guilty because here and there, they still had a relative. He had a mother. Others had a mother, a brother, that they left in the ghetto. So, is it bravery or is it forsaking them to their fate? This question plagues them even as they continue to execute vengeance in whatever way they see possible. Again and again, they found themselves asking, does revenge bring about justice? Everyone in the forest had lost someone close to them. Some had no idea where their loved ones ended up. Were they killed in the ghetto? Were they sent to Auschwitz? Most pressingly, would there be any Jews left by the time the war ended? All they knew was their mission mattered. Regardless of the outcome, they felt nothing less than a divine sense of duty to do everything in their power to fight back. I think that everybody was afraid. There was not one person who was not afraid. The thing is, we were all so dedicated to fighting, that was more important than private life. We lived death more than life. For nearly 10 months, the partisans continue to live in the forest in squalor and fear while regularly executing dangerous sabotage missions with Vitka at their core. Their unbelievable accomplishments, including destroying both the power plant and the water system of Vilna, the city that they once loved, that once gave them shelter and comfort. By mid-1944, they had destroyed over 180 miles of train tracks, five bridges, 
40 enemy train cars, killed at least 212 enemy soldiers, and rescued at least 71 Jews. So here's the point where we all find ourselves asking, how did they not get caught? How did the Germans not discover them during this entire period? Well, here's Dina Porat again. The Germans didn't succeed much because the forest is big. It has no paths. You don't know your way. And if you're not local, you certainly don't know your way. And the partisans ran from one place to another. So they didn't succeed much, but they tried. They tried very hard to catch them so that to stop their activities. You know that their bravery and their activities were so influential, so much so that when the time came and the Red Army was marching towards Vilna in order to liberate it, they gave the partisans, and especially the Jewish partisans, the privilege of walking first. In July 1944, the Soviet army finally arrives to liberate Vilna. Vitka, Abba, and Roska are among the first to reach the liberated city as commanders of a patrol unit. It is a moment of celebration and also bitter realization. The city they knew is barely recognizable. Their family and friends are all gone. While there is hope that some escaped into the Soviet Union, the reality is that most Jews did not survive as the partisans did. Suddenly, we saw Soviet soldiers, and they saw us. We were speaking Yiddish, and they were very excited and said, we are also Jews. Then there was kissing and a lot of joy, because suddenly, the Jewish soldiers of the Red Army had met up with Jewish partisans of the Soviet Army. There was a lot of excitement, because every one of us thought that there were no more Jews left in the world. We really thought we were the last Jews in the world. Vitka smiles through her tears. They may not have saved everyone, but their actions were not meaningless. They accelerated the downfall of the Germans. They saved the lives of hundreds. And they survived. In 1945, Vitka and Abba were married. And the next year, they fulfilled their lifelong dream of moving to Palestine. They settled near Tel Aviv, where they raised two children, continuing to live out their values of resistance and justice together for over 43 years. After the war, Vitka became an active member of the Bricha movement, an underground organization that helped smuggle Holocaust survivors to Palestine. Until Israel declared independence from Britain, this movement became the primary way for thousands of Jews to start over, to leave behind the darkness of the past. However, as time went on, Abba found himself returning again and again to the question not only of justice, but of revenge. Together with a small group of former partisans, Abba became consumed with the idea of an eye for an eye, even going so far as to plan a nefarious and awful plot to kill millions of German citizens. While the plan ultimately did not succeed, it's a dangerous reminder of how a thirst for vengeance 
can at times go too far. As for Vitka, she abandoned the concept of revenge and encouraged Abba to do the same. She went on to dedicate the rest of her life to helping children, becoming a child psychologist and pioneering a nonverbal color therapy that helped youth process their trauma, a career which in turn helped her process her own. Over the years, Vitka Kempner's legacy has only grown in stature. She has become a symbol of strength, bravery, and power for the Jewish resistance movement and a true heroine of the Holocaust. I'm telling you when God concocted this uh, creature that was called Vitka, he forgot to put fear into the ingredients. She was fearless. I knew her well. That was really an, an amazing lady and very reserved and quiet and never boasted. And uh, you know that she got, for what she did in the forest, she got the medal of the hero of the Soviet Union, which is the highest one, but she never bothered to go collect it at all. And she got it only when she was already in Israel. <laughs> and then she said, ah, hanging it on the wall, why should I hang it on the wall? Despite her humility, Vitka continues to this day to receive recognition for her actions. In fact, there is a well-known Yiddish folk song that was written by Hirsch Glick, a member of the Vilna Resistance, about Vitka's exploits during the war. We admire her very much for her contribution to fighting the war and standing up for the rights of Jews and, and really of everybody. No one should have to live the way the, the Jews lived under threat of extermination and the heavy hands of prejudice. So, so she really stands for a lot of the, the values of humanity. And her name should be better known alongside other women who were involved in fighting the Nazis. We honor the heroes of the past, heroes like Vitka Kempner, by invoking their memory in the present. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed this story, and I am so excited for you to check out Hunters, streaming on Prime Video. If you're interested in learning more about Vitka Kempner, please visit yadvashem.org, Y-A-D-V-A-S-H-E-M.org. The Vitka Partisan Song is an archive item courtesy of Yad Vashem. Special thanks to Sherry Rosenblum and Paul Orbach for the Vitka Kempner interview and translation, to the Jewish Partisan Educational Foundation, and to Rick Trank, Judy Friedman, and the Simon Wiesenthal Center. Audio recordings of Vitka Kempner, courtesy of the Jewish Partisan Educational Foundation. You can learn more at www.jewishpartisans.org. Biggest prize you could imagine. One more run, and everything that we have done will have been worth it. 
We can't do it alone. So where are your friends? Evil doesn't retire. So why should we? This has to be perfect, like clockwork. Join us. Hunters, starring Al Pacino. Executive produced by Jordan Peele. Stream now on Prime Video. This podcast was narrated by David Weil, creator and executive producer of Hunters on Prime Video. It was executive produced by Jordan Peele, Stephen Hine, Natalie Williams, and David Weil. Produced by Netta Farshbaff, Keisha Center, and Sophia Williams. This episode is written by Josh Chesler. Voiceovers by Rebecca S. Gomberg and David Lanson. Voiceover casting by Daryl Eisenberg and Allie Beans. Associate producers are Rebecca Drucker and Hayda Holscher. Post-production and co-produced by Trey Booty. The podcast featured the original theme and score from the second season of Hunters, written by Rupert Gregson Williams. This podcast featured the original theme and score from second season of Hunters, written by Rupert Gregson Williams. Chutzpah. Hunters Presents True Stories of Resistance is produced by Prime Video, Monkey Paw Productions, and Story Mill Media.